Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the Great West LifeCo fourth quarter 2021 results conference call. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Paul Mann, President and CEO of Great West LifeCo. Please go ahead. Thank you, Ariel. Good afternoon and welcome to Great West LifeCo's fourth quarter 2021 conference call. We hope you and your families are safe and healthy. Joining me on today's call is Gary McNicholas, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, and together we will deliver today's formal presentation. Also joining us on the call and available to answer your questions are David Harney, President and Chief Operating Officer, Europe, Arshul Jamal, President and Group Head, Strategy, Investment, Reinsurance and Corporate Development, Jeff McCowan, President and Chief Operating Officer, Canada, Ed Murphy, President and Chief Executive Officer, Empower, and Bob Reynolds, President and Chief Executive Officer, Putnam Investments. Before we start, I'll draw your attention to our cautionary notes regarding forward-looking information and non-IFRS financial measures on slide two. These apply to today's discussion and presentation materials. Please turn to slide four. Great West Life Co. continued its positive momentum in 2021 and delivered strong results during a year when we made significant advances on our value creation priorities. Full year 2021 base earnings of $3.3 billion and base EPS of $3.51 increased 22% over 2020. In a rapidly changing world, Great West Life Co. once again demonstrated its strength and ability to adapt. I thank my colleagues across the organization for their contributions and dedication to our customers amid continuing pandemic challenges. The 2021 results reflect strong organic growth, the benefits of recent acquisitions, and disciplined capital deployment. Guided by our value creation priorities, we made great progress across our businesses. In the U.S., Empower reached an agreement to acquire the retirement services business of Prudential Financial, which we expect to close early in the second quarter of 2022. Like the mass mutual transaction, Prudential will add greater scale, synergies, and capabilities, further reinforcing Empower's leadership position in the U.S. retirement market and growth opportunities in the broader U.S. wealth management market. The integrations of mass mutual and personal capital have been an important focus over the past year. Empower's expertise as an integrator is proving out as we deliver on expense synergies, maintain high client retention, and see, health, see healthy asset growth in Empower's D.C. and retail wealth management businesses. We also extended Personal Capital's digital advice capabilities with the launch of a new personalized digital experience. This experience is being rolled out across the Empower platform and now available to over 2 million plan participants. The new online tool illustrates a person's unique financial picture and offers users financial wellness guidance and advice. It is one step in our longer-term strategy to be a primary provider of lifetime financial wellness support and services to the millions of Americans who have retirement plans with Empower. 
In Canada, we saw strong top-line growth in 2021 and expanded our group customer business with the acquisition of ClaimSecure, adding 1.25 million plan members and increasing access to the TPA and TPP services market. Canada Life finished the year strong when it was awarded the Federal Government Health Care Benefits Plan, the single largest group plan in Canada. When implemented in 2023, we'll be supporting the well-being of an additional 1.5 million Canadians. I congratulate Jeff McCowan and his team for this historic win. In Europe, Irish Life continued to expand its footprint in Ireland with acquisitions like Arc Life and our joint venture investment with Allied Irish Bank. We also continued to leverage our recent smaller acquisitions of brokers and advisors to expand in wealth management. In Germany, where we have a strong position in retail pensions sold through brokers, a recently launched digital servicing platform gives us the ability to grow our stake in the developing group group pensions market in Germany. Our capital and risk solutions business entered into new reinsurance markets in Japan and Israel this year, while continuing to partner and provide bespoke solutions to existing clients in North America and Europe. And across the company, we employed our ESG investment expertise to develop and launch new ESG product portfolios at Putnam, Panagora, and Canada Life. We also continued to expand our access to alternative investment capabilities through Northleaf and the recently established strategic partnership with Cigar Holdings. Together, our focused value creation priorities and disciplined execution against those priorities have led us to meet or exceed medium-term financial objectives in 2021. Please turn to slide five. This slide outlines our three three medium-term financial objectives and tracks our performance on a one-year and three-year basis. I'm pleased with our strong performance against all three measures. Base EPS growth of 22% in 2021 and 13% compounded growth over the last three years exceeded our 8 to 10% objective, reflecting solid organic growth, a healthy rebound from COVID impacts in 2020, and a strong contribution from the mass mutual acquisition. Base ROE of 14.6% reflects a shift in our mix towards more capital-light group and wealth management businesses in recent years. And our dividend payout ratio of 51.4% in 2021 was within our target range of 45 to 55%. Please turn to slide six. Our fourth quarter saw strong overall results. Base earnings were $825 million and net earnings were $765 million. Base EPS of $0.89 was up 11% year over year. The year-over-year growth reflects strong organic growth, the achievement of synergies, and solid performance in acquired businesses, along with the benefits of higher market values. Net earnings of $0.82 per share were down 16% year-over-year. You'll recall Q4 2020 included two large positives, the the revaluation of U.S. deferred tax asset and the net gain on the sale of GLC. This quarter, we recognized additional contingent considerations given the strong performance of the personal capital acquisition and a number of smaller wealth acquisitions in Ireland. While it impacts net earnings in period, it represents significant additional value being created for the future from these acquisitions. Please turn to slide seven. Canada saw strong sales momentum in all business segments and product types in the fourth quarter. Total sales were up 31% year over year, 
with enhanced digital sales capabilities and insights from artificial intelligence supporting these strong results. In addition, the significant federal government plan win that I noted earlier, which is actually not reflected in these numbers, Canada led the market in the group life and health sales both in quarter and for the full year. Momentum in the business has returned to pre-pandemic levels. We also introduced product enhancements, including ESG seg funds, and expanded agent amount limits for Simple Protect, our online insurance application. And over 4,000 financial advisors in our advisor solutions networks now have access to a new digital financial planning platform, improving advisor and customer experience. Please turn to slide eight. Empower saw continued strong momentum with assets under administration, excluding personal capital, up 21% to $1.1 trillion. Large plans coupled with strong growth in retail wealth management drove the year-over-year -year increase in sales. Empower IRA assets were up 49% to U.S. $24 billion, while personal capital assets were up 41% to U.S. $23 billion. As noted earlier, our mass mutual and personal capital integration programs are progressing well and on schedule. We've achieved U.S. $80 million in annual pre-tax run rate cost synergies to date for mass mutual. We remain on track to achieve our target of $160 million by the end of 2022 and are pleased with Empower's performance on all key metrics, including AUA and participant growth, retail asset growth, and our underlying earnings momentum. Please turn to slide nine. Putnam's AUM was up US $11 billion year over year to $202 billion. Sales increased 7%, reflecting strong institutional sales growth. Net flows were flat, with outflows in lower fee fixed income products, offset by improved flows in higher, higher, higher fee equity products. Both trends are consistent with the broader market and resulted in a modest increase in Putnam's average fee rate. Putnam's continued strong investment performance is demonstrated by four and five star Morningstar ratings on 25 funds and over 80% of fund assets performing at levels above the Lipper median on both a three and five year basis. Please turn to slide 10. In Europe, we saw continued strong growth in equity release mortgages in the quarter and closed three UK bulk annuity deals totaling uh, $320 million Canadian. Wealth sales were up 28% year over year, largely driven by international bond sales in the UK and retail pension sales in Ireland. And finally, assets under administration across Europe continue to increase with positive net flows in both wealth and investment-only mandates. Please turn to slide 11. In our capital and risk solutions segment, expected profit rose 2% year over year with growth in structured life and longevity portfolios. Results were muted by the negative impact of a stronger US dollar as noted on the slide. We ple we're pleased that our structured solutions and longevity pipelines are both strong as we move forward into 2022. Like the industry, we continue to see COVID-related adverse experience in U.S. traditional life that was improved from the prior quarter. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Gary to review the financial highlights. Gary? 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Thank you, Paul. Please turn to slide 13. Overall, as Paul noted, we were very pleased with the financial results this quarter. In addition to highlighting the strong momentum we see across the business, the results also reflect the strategic deployment of capital in the past year. Compared to the prior year, base CPS of 89 cents was up 11% and 14% in constant currency, given the strengthening of the Canadian dollar. The increase was due to several factors, including broad-based business growth, higher stock market levels, and the significant acquisitions in the last year. Notwithstanding continued adverse U.S. life claims experience in the Capital and Risk Solutions Reinsurance Business Unit, the strength in base earnings was evident across the segments, reflecting very solid fundamentals and a diversified book of business. Starting with Canada, base earnings were $317 million, down 9% from an exceptionally strong Q4 last year. Business performance was good, with expected profit up 4%, and insurance experience, particularly health and disability, producing a solid gain. Canada also saw a strong contribution from yield enhancement activity in the quarter. In the U.S., base earnings were up significantly year-over-year, with strong organic growth at Empower and the inclusion of the mass mutual business this year. The acquired mass mutual business continued to perform well, although down from the last couple of quarters due to one-time reporting true-ups. The business added 55 million Canadian or 44 million U.S. dollars in U.S. dollars to base earnings, including expense synergies and strong fee income. Note this includes financing costs and amortization of intangibles. On an annualized run rate basis, 80 million U.S. of the targeted 160 million pre-tax expense synergies have been achieved thus far. Customer retention to date has also been strong and integration activity is on track to complete later this year. Personal capital continues to invest in new customer acquisition to fuel growth and profitability and recorded a base loss of US 6 million in line with expectations. The enforced book of business continues to generate profits and net asset growth has exceeded initial expectations. This welcome growth, in turn, triggers the additional contingent purchase consideration recorded this quarter. On the integration front, as Paul noted, the rollout of the personal capital digital capabilities to the broader Empower client base is successfully underway, with over 2 million plan participants now having access to the enhanced user experience. Looking at Empower excluding mass mutual and personal capital, base earnings were up smartly year over year as a result of strong organic growth, higher markets, and the continued expansion of the Empower IRA rollover business. On a sequential basis, Empower base earnings declined 117 million US from 145 million US, driven by seasonal expenses and several one-time items, which combined total approximately 22 million U.S. after tax. Allowing for this, 
Empower base earnings were broadly in line with the past couple of quarters, closer to a more normalized earnings run rate. Putnam's results increased year over year with higher fee revenues from higher average AUM and a one-time tax benefit, partly offset by lower net investment income on seed capital mark-to-market losses and reduced performance fees this period. A small number of products drove the year-over-year decline in both performance fees and net investment income, with stronger calendar year performance in 2020 compared to 2021. In Europe, base earnings increased 9% year-over-year, 14% in constant currency. UK base earnings benefited from new business gains on the large bulk annuity sale reported in Q3, strong yield enhancement, and a favorable tax impact. Ireland-based earnings increased 8% year-over-year with higher fee income and positive health and disability experience more than offsetting adverse life claims, and base earnings in Germany were steady. In capital risk solutions, the reinsurance business continues to grow, including the expansion into newer markets during the year, notably Japan and Israel. U.S. life claims were again elevated in line with the industry, and we continue to hold a provision for additional excess claims in the near term. In contrast with the U.S. experience, mortality rates have been less impacted recently by COVID in the U.K. and Netherlands, and as a result, we did not see the offsets in the longevity business this quarter. At the LifeCo level, notwithstanding the growth in base earnings, net EPS of $0.82 fell 16% from Q4 2020, primarily due to the two large non-recurring gains last year, as Paul noted earlier, and whereas this quarter we recognized additional contingent consideration resulting from the success of recent acquisitions. Turning to slide 14, we can see the impact of various excluded items, which net to uh, minus 60 million overall. These are predominantly acquisition-related, covered earlier, and and, uh, actuarial liability-related, which I'll describe in Uh, further in the upcoming slides. Turning to slides 15 and 16, these next two slides highlight the source of earnings, first from a base earnings perspective and then a net earnings perspective. And I'll focus the comments on slide 16, the net earnings source uh, source of SOE display, with a reminder that the amounts above the line are pre-tax. First, expected profit was up 16% year over year notwithstanding some currency uh, pressure with the euro down 7% year-over-year and the U.S. dollar down 3%. Mass Mutual was not in Q4 2020, but added $73 million this quarter. Even before that addition, expected profit was up 7% or 10% on a constant currency basis. We are seeing a 39% increase at Empower coming from strong organic business growth and fee income benefits from higher market levels. Canada was up 4%, and the Europe and capital risk solution segments grew more modestly given currency headwinds. Moving to new business impacts, I'll call out a couple of points. In the US, we saw an increase in the non-deferrable acquisition costs as a result of strong sales and adding mass mutual new business this year. In the UK, building on the large bulk annuity sale last quarter and smaller ones this quarter, the investment team was able to secure attractive backing assets producing a pre-tax gain of $26 million, which offset non-deferrable acquisition costs on the wealth business in Ireland and the UK. Capital risk solutions reverted to more modest new business impacts this quarter, compared to an outsized gain last quarter 
and outsized strain a year ago. Single large reinsurance transactions can cause new business impacts to fluctuate from period to period in this segment. Experience gains contributed positively in the quarter, and I'll cover these in more detail on the next slide, along with the actuarial basis changes. Note, certain UK property-related experience gains are reflected in the actuarial liabilities and as such are excluded from base earnings. This accounts for the difference between the experience gain lines between base and base SOE and net SOE on these two slides. Earnings on surplus of minus 36 million is down, six, down from positive 6 million last year, primarily due to seed capital losses at Putnam this quarter compared to strong seed capital gains in Q4 2020, plus increased financing costs in respect to the advanced funding of the planned Prudential Retirement Business Acquisition. Note 14 million of the 36 relates to loss consolidation accounting, which is reversed below the line in non-controlling interest, and it has no bottom line impact. The effective tax rate this quarter was 9% on base shareholder earnings and 10% on net earnings, primarily reflecting the jurisdictional mix of earnings and tax-exempt investment income and the release of certain tax provisions. Uh, By way of comparison, the effective tax rate on base earnings in Q4 2020 was 13%. Turning to slide 17, these tables expand on the experience results as well as the management actions and changes in assumptions to highlight various items in the quarter, some of which we've touched on already. As shown in the chart on the left, yield enhancement continued to contribute positively, particularly in Canada this quarter. We continue to originate a steady volume of equity lease mortgages in the UK on a solid residential property backdrop. The net impact of mortality, longevity, and morbidity was modestly negative this period due to the combination of COVID-related claims in US life reinsurance and UK and Irish group life offset by positive experience in disability and health, again reflecting the benefits of a diversified book of business. Credit-related impacts were positive this quarter as our high-quality investment portfolio continues to perform well with minor ratings changes and a recovery in previously impaired assets contributing to an experience gain. The expense variances shown here reflect strategic project costs and some seasonal and one-time expense items. I'll review expenses in more detail on the next slide. The chart on the right details the major basis changes with a positive impact from changes in the economic assumptions used in liability modeling, primarily interest risk and benefits inflation provisions in the European business and modest adjustments in other areas. Moving to slide 18, this slide highlights operating expenses by segment. Expenses are up year over year as expected given the increase in business, both organically and through M&A. And we also saw a bump in expenses sequentially largely related to normal seasonality and some one-time items. In Canada, expenses were up 4% year-over-year, reflecting increased sales activity and sub-advisory expenses related to the GLC McKenzie transaction. On a sequential basis, Canada's expenses were higher in part due to seasonality as well as technology investments supporting growth. In the U.S., the mass mutual acquisition added $105 million to expenses in the quarter. And excluding mass mutual, the U.S. expenses were up 6% year-over-year. The sequential increase in U.S. expenses 
was partly due to one-time expenses in Q4 and the normal seasonality in certain expense items at Empower. These items equated to more than half the increase, while the rest was related to strong sales and business growth. In Europe, expenses increased 13% year-over-year, mainly due to acquisition-related costs in Ireland and strategic investments in the UK and Germany. The increase in Europe's expenses on a sequential basis was amplified by the one-time pension curtailment gain of $55 million that we called out for Ireland last quarter. In capital and risk solutions, expense growth is aligned with growth in the business and expansion into newer markets. Please turn to slide 19. Q4 book value per share of $24.71 was up 8% year-over-year, primarily driven by increased retained earnings given the solid results in each of the past four quarters. Currency translation in OCI has been a headwind this year with the strengthening Canadian dollar, but this has been offset by the pension OCI given the increase in interest rates. The LICAT ratio at Canada Life remains strong at 124%, up one point compared to last quarter, given continued solid earnings net of dividends. In addition, Canada Life moved to a new most adverse LICAT scenario in Q4. This nullified the downward impact of the prior scenario this quarter and is expected to lead to an increase of one point per quarter for the next five quarters as this change is smoothed in over time. Lastly, I'd note that LifeCo Cash, which is not included in the LICAT ratio, ended the quarter at 0.6 billion unchanged from last quarter. Back to you, Paul. Thank you, Gary. Uh, please turn to slide 20. We're, um, I'll close our um, formal comments by saying that we're pleased with our top line and bottom line momentum across LifeCo as we leverage our investments in organic and M&A enabled growth. Looking ahead, we remain confident in our ability to deliver on our medium term financial objectives as we work to successfully integrate acquired businesses and execute against our value creation priorities. We believe that to create this sustainable value for shareholders, we must also be committed to responding to the needs of all stakeholders. It's with this mindset that we're developing and implementing strategies in support of the environment, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sustainability across our organization. This work enabled us to make a commitment to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. We look forward to sharing more on this initiative and announcing interim targets later this year. That concludes my formal remarks. Ariel, please open the line for questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Manny Grauman of Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Um, Gary, you referenced good retention uh, at MassMutual, and I'm wondering if you have uh, any more uh, numbers for us related to retention, anything you can provide. Uh, many, it's, many, it's Paul. I'll jump in on that. Um, we won't get. I'll, I'll, I'm going to turn that over to, to uh, Ed Murphy to talk about uh, where we're at from a retention perspective. Um, the reality is, we look at retention across a range of different segments, but we're performing um, actually at or better across, across those segments. And I'll let Ed provide a little bit more color. 
Ed? Sure. Uh, thanks, Paul. Yep. Thank you. Uh, yeah, to, to Paul's point, uh, we feel really good about where we are. We've we've transitioned um, three waves of clients uh, over to our platform. The fourth wave will uh, transition over next weekend. There's a total of eight waves, so we expect to complete the transition in the uh, early fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, but we're running we're running at or ahead of plan in terms of both asset retention, client retention, and revenue retention. Just a follow-up. So in terms of the waves that you mentioned, I would assume that you're kind of halfway there. Is, is that right, uh, just given your comments before? No, I, I would say, yeah, many, I would say we're not halfway there. We're halfway there in terms of the number of waves. But as you would probably expect, uh, we tend to, to start off with the smaller, less complex waves and build up uh, towards the, the larger, uh, more complex waves in the latter part of the transition program. Got it. Makes sense. And then um, just switching gears, um, there was some discussion uh, in terms of the shift in mix at Putnam away from uh, fixed income into higher earning uh, equity products. And I'm just wondering, um, as you kind of look at what's happening uh, early in Q1, do you still see that trend? And what do you expect going forward and what are the implications for um performance uh, at Putnam, given that shift that you're seeing? Yeah, uh, so I'll start off with that one, Manny, and then I'm going to turn it to Bob. So as I outlined in my opening comments, we're really pleased with uh, Putnam's fund performance for its clients. Um, and, you know, you, you see that in the Morningstar ratings, you see that in the Barron's Lipper uh, results, and that manifests itself, obviously, in a, attractive funds uh, to clients. And what we've seen is you know, uh, strength in, e in equity flows. And I think that's an industry phenomenon, but in particular, I think Putnam is is experiencing that. And I'll let Bob speak to sort of uh, his outlook. Bob? Yeah, I, I think when you look at uh, 2021, we did have positive equity flows in all of our channels. And as Paul said, it was due to performance. Uh, we have 25, 26 four and five star funds and a majority of large majority of the five star funds are on the equity side. So thus far this year, again in all channels, even though we're uh you know in early February, we do have positive flows in all channels and equities. So that has continued. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Manny. Our next question comes from Gabrielle Deshane of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. I'm going to ask this in a you know layman's way, but uh, I know the yield enhancement numbers. Um, well, yield enhancement that doesn't sound too layman, but uh, 100 and some odd million. That's you know a typical figure for you. What would that number look like under IFRS 17? That, uh, Gabriel, is one that I will definitely pass on to Gary. Um, I think it's a bit more complex. Um, a lot of it will depend on the geography and nature, but I'll let Gary provide you with some context. Yeah, um, thanks, Paul. So uh, the, the short answer is can't don't know exactly what it will look like. Um, and the reason I say that, uh, uh, Gabriel, is that as um, depending on the type of approach you use to discounting your liabilities this uh you know at ifrs 17 speak it's top down or bottom up 
you, uh, you'll get a, a different treatment and we'll have uh, different approaches uh, across our various portfolios. So I, I think at a, a high level, we'll see it reduce. Uh, that, that we would expect to see, but we wouldn't expect to see, uh, see the impact. It won't be called yield enhancement, but the same type of uh, um, you know, uh, impact would happen just by the, the way the, uh, you know, any asset trading will flow through discount rates. So you'll see a number it will be somewhere in between uh, these type of typical numbers. You're right, this is, a, this is in our sort of typical range. You'd, you'd likely see something in, in between the two. It won't go away completely, but it will certainly uh, diminish in some portfolios because the way we're going to discount liabilities. Hopefully that helps. In well, in between the two, what? You said something like now and in between what? Uh... So I'm just saying in between zero and uh, and where we are today. So okay. it doesn't go away completely, but it will reduce. Got it. The other point I'd make is if you look at the um, trajectory of our business and sort of where our growth is right now, you're seeing um, very strong growth in our obviously our group retirement and uh, a lot of our wealth management businesses. So we're seeing a shift in our mix to businesses where yield enhancement hasn't historically featured, and and so obviously there's sort of no quote unquote change on change there that would be impacted. So you know as business shifts into as we're seeing the high growth and empower and in our wealth management businesses, that construct of yield enha uh, enhancement would typically not be as feature as strongly. Yeah, we've known each other long enough. You can call me Gabe, by the way. Um, the other question, uh, the, I will. the group <laughs> group business, uh, it's come up a lot today and in the past. I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff, uh, you know, happening in that business or, or, or in society or, you know, more broadly, that that affects the outlook of that business. I'm I'm just wondering how you view the lay of the land land in terms of actions you've taken to reprice the book, which may have predated COVID, and you know businesses that are probably looking to extend coverage or, or buy more yeah buy more coverage as a, as a competitive uh, action uh, for talent, and then the you know incidence rates and 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 duration of claim issues and you know uh, cost of medical care uh, and on, on the headwind side like those three in particular medical care and cost of claim and, and uh, sorry and uh, duration of claim and and incidence rates are there any that are you know, kind of percolating that we should be aware of as we we look uh, towards the, the full year outlook here. So, 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 Gabe, and see, I said it right there. Um, there you go. Uh, uh, I would say there's. You, you've sort of asked two questions there. Uh, what yeah. is the upside? Um, and you know, why do we like the business? And then I think you're asking about downside. You know, sort of more technically, as we think about claims incidents and uh, claims termination rates and the like. Let me talk at a high level about our views on the group business. And I'll. I think it actually extends beyond group benefits and in, and into group retirement, especially when you talk about. Uh, the competition for talent and the importance of having high quality benefits for people's you know financial security or, or, or health security so fundamentally that is um, uh, I we think is a critically important part of why this is a very attractive business for us so I'd say as a if you think about the fundamental the fundamentals of, of people saving for retirement the fundamentals of people wanting to have benefits then we look at those businesses um, through a broader lens and we say 
These are businesses actually where we have millions of client relationships. And a lot of the things that were traditionally delivered via, you know, face-to-face advice or over the phone or in employee meetings and the like are moving to digital. And when you take the power of a personal capital type platform or you take the power of our plan member as customer digital solutions in Canada, those relationships, the value of those relationships uh, can go a lot farther in terms of actually building an actual retail client base through digital means. So I think it's very powerful. So we look at that business and and, uh, we do think people will be raising the bar for benefits from the standpoint of... um, you know, competing for talent, and I think that goes to us making sure that we're focused there. Um, and, and so I think that's really important for us. Um, the, the second part in terms of, you know, our views on claims management, I mean, our performance has been very strong through the period, and I think that goes, and I'm going to just talk about it at a, at a general level, goes back to our discipline in pricing, our discipline in underwriting, and actually our discipline in claims management, making sure that we're really taking care of the claimant and taking care of the company. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's really been a strength of ours. And this applies not just to the Canadian book of business, it's the UK, you know, um, life and income benefit business. It's the Irish life, uh, Irish life business on the group side. But I'll let Jeff McCown provide a bit of context to it on his perspective on the business, and in particular his perspective on, you know, our performance right now and and outlook for things like, uh, you know, claims incidents and the like. Jeff? Thanks, Paul. And I'm going to go with Gabe, uh, Gabriel. Um, um, Maybe just to build on Paul's points, if I could, uh, Gabe, um, you know, Paul talked about our expansion with members across Canada, and so uh, the the Claim Secure Edition uh, uh, brings 1.2 million Canadians for us to uh, 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 tell our story to, in addition to why we're quite bullish on, on this market is it opens up the third-party admin market or the third-party payer market that, that we would have a relatively lower share in the Canadian market, and so there's lots of growth there for us. So that tells us that uh, we expect to have uh, large growth in that, and I can already say in the, since Claim Secure has come on board, that we've been successful in uh, a number of cross-sale opportunities, and there's many more. So this is opening a lot of room. We touched on the Government of Canada that brings us 1.5 million Canadians. That was important for us to tell our story. The other thing is why we're quite bullish on this business is that um, the, the, the relationship between the group retirement market and the group life and health market as one Canada life uh, we've moved very aggressively to a to a single sort of entry point, and the opportunities between those businesses is really significant, and and that's one of the reasons we had record record sales in 21 in that business. And quickly, I'll just conclude Paul's comments on on discipline management. I mean, this has been a hallmark of Canada Life for years, and so from a disability perspective, uh, we know this business well. We manage it well. Uh, we 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 placed. Uh, adjustments in pricing well before COVID came through. We continue to monitor that aggressively. And so, uh, you know, we really know this business and have been putting through the appropriate uh, rate adjustments to get the appropriate margins uh, as we go through. Uh, And and just to, you know, uh, simplify it, but the, you know, the the morbidity trend and and I think tied mostly to the group has been, you know, a bit positive or neutral over the past few quarters. Is that, you think that's sustainable for the rest of the year? or the 2022 that we have ahead of us? Well, 
I, I would say uh, you're right, Gabe, that, that uh, we, we at Canada Life have enjoyed very good uh, morbidity uh, and mortality, I might add. Um, we, we enjoyed a good year in 21. Um, this business is a, uh, uh, it takes about a year to get through the pricing. And so that uh, we did put pricing uh, adjustments through in 21. So uh, we're fully loaded as we enter into 22. And uh, that should provide us uh, a good safety as we move through 22. Gabe, can I, I um, are, are you okay on that one? Because I, I wanted to come back to the yes. yield enhancement um, point. Just one of the points, and, I, and Gary just sent me a note, I wanted to put a, a fine point on it. When you think about yield enhancement, um, there's no change in the economics of the business. What we're talking about is the, we're just talking about the incidents of when earnings occur. Um, so mm -hmm. rather than the front-ending or, or some front-ending that you would have in terms of yield enhancement, what you're going to see that is spread out, uh, you know, over uh, the the broader life of the contract. So as we think about value creation and taking steps to enhance yield to try to drive either you know stronger pricing or drive stronger returns, it's all there. It's just a question of the incidence. So I don't want you to go away thinking that there is a diminution of value creation. The value is there. It's just part of the learning process. Uh, appreciate all the answers. Thanks. Yeah. Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Good afternoon. Uh, Gary, maybe if we go to slide 13, there's a few kind of favorable tax items mentioned in there. Um, if you can maybe highlight what each one of those are, you know, with Putnam and then in Europe and then Capital and Risk Solutions and how much they were. And I have follow-up. Um, you know, Tom, let me just start off, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly go to that detail, and Gary can probably can take you through some of it, but, you know, it might be worthwhile to get into a one-on-one -on -one if you want to get into a lot of detail. Suffice it to say, um, you know, this quarter, um, a uh, tax, you know, a, a tax rate, as Gary outlined, in that 9%-ish range compared to 13% a year ago. So it was a number of one-time items, and we continue to view that that low teens rate is kind of what the normalized rate is. We actually do see that normalized rate likely uh, growing over time because a lot of our growth, as you'll have noted, is, is in the U.S. jurisdiction where there's a, a slightly higher tax rate. So right now, we still are quite uh, confident that you know our view of a low teens tax rate is sort of where we're at right now. Probably a little bit of lift as we look forward, but um, Gary can, can provide a little bit of context around the details. Gary? Sure. Yeah, I, I think, um, Tom, and, and as Paul said, we can go into further details uh, offline if need be. But at a, at a high level, uh, you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to the year-end tax true-ups, as you can imagine. Um, in terms of the, the ones we are calling out your, for uh, ballparking for, say, Europe and capital risk solutions, it's probably in the, in the 20 million uh, for each of those range. And, and actually, the overall for life goes probably in that sort of um, probably call it around 40 million ballpark for the overall uh, amount at LIFCO level. What you saw in uh, in the U.S., uh, Putnam uh, picked up I think just over 20 million, but there was a there's an offset. Um, there was a you know a negative items in the corporate section there. So uh, I think the net in the U.S. was, uh, was actually very small. In Canada, I think was a, a small going slightly the other way. They had a higher tax rate this year than last year. So. It's probably 40 million overall, and I'd call out the two 20 million bits in Europe and reinsurance, but 
there's a bit of geography in the U.S. and then Canada, if anything, a little bit of pressure on the tax rate. So that gives you a, a high level. No, that's very helpful. Um, now, the Empower, um, you know, you look quarter over quarter, assets went up 5%. I think participants were up. Yet the earnings, the base earnings were down 20% quarter over quarter. Um, you mentioned something about seasonality of expenses. I'm not sure what some of the other things were contributing to that, but I'm not sure how we should be looking at a run rate. Should it be related more to the third quarter or the fourth quarter? Um, uh, help us understand that. Yeah. Um, so, Tom, I'll start off there, and then I'll, I'll let Gary provide a little bit of context around the seasonality and one-time items. So, you know, we launched into this, um, you know, obviously Empower has been in strong organic growth mode. We've had, seen the benefits of Mass Mutual coming on stream early in the year. And um, there's a bit of lumpiness, uh, you know, as the benefits come on stream. But also, uh, the fourth quarter typically has, you know, some seasonality in it, and things like customer mailings and the like that are quite different. So the reality is, as we look at the trajectory, you know, as we look at the trajectory of the, the business, those, those sort of uh, second and third quarter results are more indicative of the way we think about the results. But I'll let Gary provide a little more color there. Gary? Sure. Thanks. I, actually, Paul, you, you went where I was. If you look at the second and third quarter, there are pretty consistent results, and that's probably uh, close to what you see in the run rate. But, yeah, there, you mentioned, Paul, the expenses and some of the one-time items that there is uh, there is a seasonality to it, and that's uh, you've got 13 million people, and you've got a lot of uh, year-end packages, a lot of print and postage, uh, and that adds up when you've got such a, a large uh, participant base. Um, there were some one-time costs, some uh, uh, penalties or a break fee on major uh, technology contract change. Uh, there were some true-ups on uh, the mass mutual accounting for certain fees and, and commissions. So, uh, and then frankly, of course, we do uh, true-ups or variable comp at year end and as, as you've seen all year empowers had a fantastic year so we would have accrued something for that as well so you do have those uh, those expenses and I, I think you can see it in the uh, in the appendix if you look at how the expenses uh, grew a uh, quarter over quarter you'll compared to the how it was running the rest of the year so that gives you some idea of uh, this quarter in particular okay so it sounds like it's more of a real number it's just uh, the seasonality of your expenses um, are just higher in the fourth quarter. Is that suffice? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that that and some one-time yes. items. We wouldn't we wouldn't have uh, necessarily major software uh, you know, costs uh, on contract changes or or these uh, mass mutual accounting drops. That's a function of it being the first year of the transaction. Okay. So those are that was less the seasonality. Okay. Um, uh, and the last one is. I think you mentioned 28 million in other experience gain. I, I, I don't remember what it was, but uh, maybe it, is it more of a one-time? I think it's on page uh, 17 of your slides. Is that more of a one-time, or how, do, how should we be thinking about those things going forward? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, if you don't mind, Paul, just take that one. I, I think those those are typically just a, a collection and. They, they would typically be uh, one-time. I mean, some of them are, are regular. You might have pulse order behavior that, that fluctuates around a bit. Um, these ones were a net positive, but that that really is a, just a collection of, of odds and ends that don't aren't notable enough or, or of uh, wide enough interest. So um, I I would tend to think of those as one-time. In each individual one, there could be a variety, but the actual other could be plus or minus, uh, but it's typically a smaller number. 
Oh, and sorry, just to squeeze one last quick one. The the government plan you picked up, is that an ASO plan? Like, is there any capital really needed for that, or is that just strictly fee income? Um, oh, that, that one is to, to Jeff. Jeff, do you want to describe the nature of that plan? It's a uh, it's a 12-year contract um, with uh, approximately, I think it's something um, close to 26 or $8 billion dollars. Uh, uh, on a fee basis, ASO fees, we collect fees on that, and and uh, July 1, 2023. Is there any way you can tell us what you think the additional fees would be associated with this? Tom, I, I think it would be early early days for us to, to do that. I mean, we're working through, you know, we obviously, when you add a, a piece of business like this, you do it to, to make sure that it's going to be economically attractive over the long uh, over the long term. In the early going, we got to bring it on on stream. But um, you know, we're going to be working hard through this period with increased automation, digitization. So at the end of the day, um, we view that as something that will have potential, but then growing potential the more we automate. Yeah, and it, it, it is ASO, and we, yeah, that would be fair, Paul. Was that, did, how did you win that? Was that competitive bid? It, um, yeah, Jeff, Jeff, why don't you describe that? There's the, Tom, there's yep. sort of two key measures. That we cannot go into, clearly we can't tell you about, uh, you know, others that would have participated in the competition, but we can tell you about, you know, what are the things that are important to a large client like that and um, the, way, the way we thought about it. So you really can't, uh, we really shouldn't get into the details of that, but suffice it to say, at the end of the day, um, service is going to be critical, right? So, so um, you know, Jeff, is there anything you could, that, that you could you could disclose on yeah, that? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think we wouldn't want to go too far. Of course, it was a public bid, and uh, and uh, we were successful. And I don't think I would feel comfortable getting into some of the details uh, uh, at this point. But it was very much a public bid. Uh, delighted to win the plan. It's going to give us lots of horsepower, lots of brand recognition, and allow us to employ our our strategies more broadly, whether picking up new accounts or just brand recognition and, and technology enhancements in the marketplace. No, congrats on winning that uh, plan and uh, thanks for taking my time. Thank you, Doug. Our next question comes from Doug Young of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Just a few, hopefully, follow-up questions here. On the mass mutual, the sequential decline in earnings contribution, Gary, is that the $22 million that you talked about in your prepared remarks? That 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 was the one-time impact? Was, did I catch that right, or was I wrong? Yeah, Gary, you could, uh, you could go to that one. Yeah, that, um, I was just calling out the seasonal and one-time items were worth about $20 million U.S., of, uh, and that's most of the sequential decline. And that's seasonal. That's what you described. Like, is that the breaking of the tech fees, or well, that's what I say? Uh, seasonal and one time. It's sort of two categories. Oh, okay. You get some seasonality in Q4, and then there were some just one-time items that. Um, what's the one-time item? Have to be in the same quarter. What, what's the one-time item? Well, can you quantify uh, that? Okay. Here, uh, why, why don't I dig up? Doug, so so the seasonal is things that would be typical that would re repeat in another in, in future quarters, uh, and the business yeah. will continue to evolve. One time is things like break fees on a contract or 
screwing up on our um, on our incentive compensation because we had very very strong growth and success at Empower this year. And then a third a third factor I think Gary outlined is that we're in the initial you know phases of working with Mass Mutual on that. So we had some true ups um, um, on sort of the annual overall annual results on some fees that are back and forth between Mass Mutual. So all of those things are one time in nature. Yeah, just and, I'm, and I get that. I'm just wondering what the dollar, like how much of that 20 million was one time. So if I can kind of triangulate back to what the contribution was, excluding that. Uh, Gary, do you have that? Um, I'd, I'd say broadly, it's it's, uh, it's it's probably half and half of uh, of the uh, those amounts. Um, that'd be uh, okay. be my off off top of the head. Uh, maybe a little more on the one. Uh, no, it's probably about half and half. Yeah. Not that doesn't have to be exactly precise, but the and then I'm just wondering, can you quantify? Maybe you have, and maybe I haven't seen it. Quantify what the impact from COVID was this quarter. And I know it probably is more related to Arshul's business in the reinsurance side, but um, just just curious as if you quantified that. Yeah. So, so Doug, at a high level, if you think about COVID, it's you know there's positive and. Uh, and negative impacts. We've seen a real recover from COVID as the economy's grown, and we talked about sales results. But the two broad areas where that you know I, I guess you'd be thinking about would be um, uh, mortality and and um, you know annuitant mortality and and uh, life mortality. And maybe I'll let Gary start off at a high level because it's sort of when you think about this, it's not all in Arshul's um, uh, mandate. We, that also exists in some of our commercial businesses. And then um, uh, perhaps he'll pass that over to um, to uh, Arshal for a bit of context on the capital and risk solutions business. Gary? Sure. Uh, thanks, Paul. The I, I think at, at the highest level, I mean, we do call out in our uh, on our slides. I think it's uh, the slide uh, 17 where we uh, we have the additional detail and experience gains, and we show in there the the mortality, longevity, the morbidity, like all the health and dental disability, all. All of that rolled in together, and, and my comment there would be, the, the sum of those is, is basically uh, they're all offsetting. I mean, there's a very small uh, net negative, uh, and and the reason I, I call that out is it it is very difficult to say exactly what's COVID related, what's not, you know, what's a regular fluctuation. We've attributed the vast majority of these uh, these fluctuations to COVID. You can see it in extra mortality in the U.S. life reinsurance. Uh, you can see it on some of the, uh, uh, the some of the favorable um, uh, morbidity we might see from uh, less utilization of certain healthcare services in, in various uh, segments, um, and obviously some of it comes down to our, our claims and prices. So it's it is tough to know exactly which is COVID and not. But when we look at it all together, so our our sense is that on, we're basically balancing out across them all. But it was uh, it was higher in the life side. I think uh, just to give a ballpark, it was probably. Um, in the uh, 40 million, 40 to 45 million of pre-tax on the life mortality side, um, and then uh, offsetting impacts in the other areas. So that gives you a bit of a, a bit of an idea. Okay. And then maybe just lastly, you know, the expected profit growth in Europe and CRS was just lower than what I would have expected, and, and it sounds like FX was a was a bit of a contributor. You know, but growth has been fairly strong in terms of sales. Is there something else that I'm just technically, methodically not thinking of in terms of why we wouldn't be seeing better expected profit growth in, in Europe and CRS? 
Yeah, Gary, I'll let you take that one. No, I, I think um, I, obviously we did go through a very uh, a very good period of um, of growth, and a, a number of those uh, large transactions were on the longevity side, um, and they were in euros. And as I mentioned uh, during the the comments, the euro was down seven percent year over year. So that uh, those expected profits as they come off those contracts have, are certainly down. Uh, and then uh, the, we we didn't have a lot of longevity new business in 2021. There weren't as many uh, as many transactions. I mean, you also could comment more on this. I think the pipeline is uh, strong coming to 2022, but there were less deals done. So we weren't the, a big book of annuity business, uh, longevity business does run off. That's the nature of it. It it, uh, it runs off every year. We didn't really replenish much in 2021. So again, that would have a, a bit of a dampening impact on your uh, on your expected profit. But still. It went up, notwithstanding the uh, the FX. So I, th I think it's uh, it's it is good steady growth in in uh, reinsurance. Have you have you given Europe and CRS expected profit growth on a constant currency basis? If you did, I apologize, I didn't catch it. But if you have it handy, that would be helpful. I I don't actually have it handy, but we could do a follow up if that helps. Okay, yeah, it would. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Our next question comes from Paul Holden of CIBC. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good afternoon. Uh, a few questions for you. First, related to Empower and the competitive pricing environment in that market. We know that over the years it's been a fairly competitive market. Just wondering, with all the consolidation that's taken place, including Empower as a consolidator, has that settled down? Um, at all? Has price become more stable than put another way? Uh, good, good question, Paul. And that's one that Ed can definitely speak to. Ed? Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, you know, I'd say the market remains very price competitive. Uh, however, you have firms like us and others that have invested a lot in the infrastructure and in our value proposition. And as such, you know, we can and have been able to command a premium in the market and, you know, and, and continue to, and obviously we're continuing to grow the business organically at two to three times the rate of the market uh, as measured by net participant growth. So um, I, I don't know if it's a leveling off yet per se, but there's definitely less choice in the market. And I think for a premier provider like us, it puts us in a very good position. Uh, to, to capture the economics uh, and the value for the service that we're providing. Thank you for that. Uh, second question is mm -hmm. related to Canada individual insurance sales. So they're up 3% year over year, but if I look at the two competitors that also reported results, their growth rates were much higher. So just wondering if you have any color there growth differentials related to maybe differences in product mix or if there's anything going on on the distribution side that might explain us. Yeah, Paul, I'm going to pass that one to Jeff, but uh, suffice it to say, um, we're always very much focused on balancing, you know, trying to achieve strong sales growth, broadening the customer base, but also really good discipline about making sure that we're participating in the parts of the market and in the product areas where it's going to be 
quote-unquote win-win-win. Uh, win for us, you know, because it's good economic outcomes, good for the customer because we've got strong products, and good for the sales force because we're, you know, giving them products that we're fully committed to. So, you know, as we look at the year, we actually executed on our plan as we, um, it, we were happy with the results of our plan, and Jeff can provide a little bit more color relative to, um, you know, what was behind that growth rate. Jeff? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, so it, it's a good call-out. Uh, I mean, we did uh, 21 and in quarter overall uh, was an exceptional uh, sales year for us at Canada Life. Uh, on, on life insurance, and specifically, as you called out, the 3%, you know, we, we, we look upon this business on the long term, so we, we, we really want to strike a, a nice balance between the price discipline, uh, risk selection, you know, market share, sales volume, and and so uh, in in year and in quarter, I mean, we had a strong year uh, uh, in our flagship product in in participating uh, life insurance. You know, we did take uh, action in some of our other products uh, on a pricing basis to look at this on on, on a longer term basis. So, you know, um, uh, our our reach into distribution is strong. We had strong growth year over year in the, in in all of our channels. Uh, you know, I would say that. Uh, on the term side and UL side, we took some pricing action to think on the long term. We were pleased uh, with our with our, our PAR uh, uh, sales, which were higher than 3%, and uh, we're looking for uh, uh, growth uh, in, in 22 in this line. Great. And then one last question for me uh, related to capital and the interest rate scenario switch. So as you've disclosed, you're going to add roughly one point to LICAT in each of the next five quarters, and then my estimates would suggest you're going to add close to another one point from regular organic capital generation. So let's call it 10 points being added to LICAT over the next year and a half. How do you think about that additional capital flexibility you've gained now? Sort of what are the priorities uh, as you think about that, like, do you have to keep a cushion just in case the interest rate scenario switch goes the other direction again? Um, do you get more aggressive with delevering on the acquisitions you've done? Just again, broad broad thoughts on how you're thinking about that capital flexibility. Yeah, um, I'll start off with that one, Paul. So, so you're correct. Uh, the, the, those would be the you know call, we'll call them the capital strengthening. Um, and I'd say, as a, first and foremost, I'd say as we um, you know build up. Uh, more firepower. I think deleveraging is is for sure a priority for us. Um, I think deleveraging gives us a lot of flexibility and freedom as we think about uh, next steps on growth. So you know, the, so so that's kind of number one. That's number one on our mind. Um, you know, would we get more uh, uh, more aggressive um, or less aggressive? Um, we're not actually that concerned about a scenario switch. Um, you know, the the steps we've taken we think are pretty solid. Uh, so. We'll look at that capital as a source of strength, uh, ultimately to be, you know, used in, in an effective way. Um, as I said, first and foremost, deleveraging. But after that, it's about opportunity, and that's uh, that's the mindset we've got. Thank you. That's helpful. That's it for me. Our next question comes from Nigel D'Souza of Veritas Investment Research. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. I actually had a follow-up question on the uh, interest rate scenario impact of LICAT. Uh, you give us some color on, on what would actually, just even hypothetically, 
drive a interest rate scenario switch? And, and if that isn't likely, so then should we interpret it as, um, you know, the sensitivity to like at some higher rates, which I think is three percentage points for 50 basis points parallel increase, should we just interpret it as um, that capital benefit offsetting what could be uh, rising long-term yields over the coming months? Uh, I'll let Gary answer that one, uh, just to make sure that, you know, we've got the geography of the numbers there, right, uh, Gary? Yeah, I, I, you are uh, you are actually reading that correctly. That uh, you know the um, if the, if you do indeed see a rising uh, a rising interest environment, I think we put the sensitivity in our in our materials. That's where you've got the uh, the three points from the 50 bip rise, uh, and that uh, so so yeah, you you see that in terms of scenarios, which um, it would take a I think it would take a combination of. Uh, a fairly sharp decline in rates and, uh, you know, you know, changes to our ALM approach. And, um, you know, obviously we speculate on rates. Uh, they don't seem to be going down that rapidly at the moment, but obviously the world could change. But, and certainly our ALM approach, uh, we, we're not uh, planning on changing that. So, as so I said, don't see the scenario switch being very likely. And that uh, getting picking up a point every quarter, uh, in addition to our regular uh, retained earnings growth, uh, will certainly... Um, Give us some protection against just like that uh, for the whole industry has a natural uh, uh, bit of a headwind when interest rates are rising. And quick clarification on that: Does IFRS 17 impact this dynamic at all? Gary, to you. Yeah, in, sorry. In terms of um, the, uh, the obviously, the first thing I'd say is on on IFRS 17. Uh, the industry and, and ourselves, but obviously is an active part of this, the industry are working with OSFI just to make sure there's no unintended consequences on the move to, uh, to IFRS uh, 17. OSFI have indicated they, they are looking to keep the capital regime neutral, and, there's, uh, and that in terms of both the, uh, the level of transition and, and, and also looking at potential volatility as well. So I think um, there's nothing directly tied to, to IFRS uh, 17 in that. Um, it's really, uh, you know, obviously the, the end impacts will be uh, depending on where OSFI finalizes it, but certainly OSFI looking to keep uh, IFRS 17 as a neutral transition. So I don't, uh, I wouldn't foresee that changing the, the earlier narrative. Okay, that's helpful. And, you know, apologies if I missed this, but uh, was there any color on the specific actions you took to pick up or enhance uh, yield in? In Canada, um, any color there on on how you achieved it? Uh, Gary, over to you. Yeah, um, this is uh, we you know we have a certain uh, I'll call it modest uh, you know reinvestment uh, assumptions in our uh, and and you know something in our actuarial liabilities and um, what we've used a number. I mean, there's there's a variety of investments we would have gone into, but one of the ones I think I called out in the uh, in the speaking notes or or Paul might have. Is um, that we do use uh, on a swap basis the equity release mortgages are a good source of alternative assets. They have good long duration, so they're they're very effective at backing longer duration liabilities, um, and they they come with attractive spreads as an alternative asset class. So, and and when we swap them from uh, from sterling into Canadian to to back our Canadian liabilities, uh, there's uh, there's benefits there as well. So those have been that's probably the one I'd call out has been a very effective. Uh, a trade for us where we've uh, we've picked up some value. So that's what's uh, one of the big contributors to Canadian yield enhancement. Okay, that makes sense. That's it for me. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. 
Our next question comes from Darko Mihalik of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, thank you. I just want to take you back to earnings and surplus for a moment. Um, just want to make sure I understand uh, the impact that that hit this quarter, and you know, ultimately, what I'm looking for is a better way to think of what a more normalized level would be. I think you said there was a 14 million dollar impact. Um, I think you called it a. Uh, I was checking my notes here. Sometimes I scribble a, a, a lot. Lost station. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and what what else? There was seed capital losses. I mean, is, is there any way you can sort of help me walk me through the the, the math behind how we got to the negative thirty six? Or maybe you can just talk generally about what a what a more normal run rate would be for earnings and surplus. Uh, either way, I'm just looking for like the breakdown of what what caused it to go um, worse than last quarter. Yeah, uh, Gary, I'll, I'll let you uh, take that. And uh, obviously, I'll start out with the um, talking about the offset to some of that um, in the last consolidation. So over to you, Gary. Yeah, and that, the uh, that's uh, I'll call it I'll kindly call it a, a quirk in the accounting uh, regime. It's, it's not our own uh, not our own uh, making. This is where. Uh, depending on um, in certain of the funds where we have seed capital, depending on our, our percentage of the fund, we have to consolidate the entire fund and then we back it out again. So uh, we had some seed capital losses. Our, our share we keep and then the 14 million represented uh, uh, other uh, you know, losses for all the other people in the, uh, in the various funds that were involved. Um, it's just a mark-to-market, uh, obviously, rather than a realized gain, the vast majority is mark-to-market. But that just comes out in non-controlling interest. So that's 14 million. You're right. You remember the number. Otherwise, it would have been a minus 22. And, and really, what goes into surplus capital for us? Um, you know, in addition to the these uh, seed capital mark to market. But what goes in there are the largest things uh, overall are the financing costs, and that would have risen um, since last year because obviously we've pre-funded some of the prudential acquisition financing. Um, so you've got acquisition costs, and then you've just got the you know, other um, other invested assets in uh, in surplus. Um, we would have had um, also going through here from time to time are um, when you crystallize gains in uh, other comprehensive income. So that you have uh, you crystallize some unrealized gains by uh, trading the assets in surplus. We've talked about that in the past. We had very little uh, this year. We've had higher amounts of that in the past. Uh, I think if you look at the, certainly if you look at the full year, we would have had more of that in 2020, and that typically occurs when interest rates are falling. You you end up getting mark-to-market gains on fixed income, and as you uh, trade those uh, assets, you can basically harvest or realize those gains, and they come through the P&L. So that wasn't much of a feature in 2021 compared to because of rising rates, but it was in 2020. But really, it's um, it's the the run rate uh, income on your various surplus assets. You know, a number of them uh, don't have a, a yield, uh, um, but it's the run rate income and then the financing costs and their pre-tax financing costs there. So, um, you know, those are uh, those overall, those are often larger than, it's not unusual to have them larger than the uh, the other uh, surplus income. So something in the, you know, very low numbers or even uh, negative is not that unusual. Okay. I think that helps. And I just wanted to follow up on Gabe's question with respect to the yield enhancement. 
Um, I just wanted to make sure that I, I heard you correct uh, in that you were not talking about the entire net investment result being lower than the yield enhancement. In fact, what you were referencing was if you do something like uh, an equity release mortgage, then that impact on the net investment result would be milder than the current yield enhancement. Did I hear that? Is that the way I should interpret what you said? That That is an excellent way. That we get the same value over time, but right now a portion of it would be more recognized up front and less later on. And then the new regime, you'll recognize the uh, the spread more evenly over the uh, over the life of the asset. So it is, uh, you've interpreted it correctly. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And then just as a follow-on to that then, um, I know you're running a parallel system. What is what is your planned kind of release of information around some of these things like, um, you know, like the investment result, uh, earnings power, or transition? Um, it, it, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not thinking that it, it's going to be all held until Q3 and then there's going to be some massive big reveal. I'm anticipating that you'll sort of release some information as you get it to us. Or Have you guys thought about that at all? Or what's, um, what's on your mind with respect to releasing or uh, informing us of some of the major things with respect to IFRS 17. Gary, do you want to start there? Sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, we, I mean, we've had a, quite a number of, uh, of conversations internally about, uh, you know, as we get closer, I mean, we haven't, uh, you know, in terms of the actual parallel runs, obviously we will be running uh, comparative quarters during 2022, but that hasn't, uh, hasn't kicked off yet. Uh, so as as we get closer and start finalizing our policies and feel we can give um, better better direction at least directional information and, and areas to look at, we've, uh, whether it's a broader, I think people have pretty good education on it. But I think we can clarify exactly how it might apply to us. Um, we do we don't see a, a big bang approach on that. We do see uh, having some uh, some dialogue, some one on one dialogue, some uh, some disclosures on our calls. That will give uh, directional information, and that will uh, come out through the year rather than all at once. So you're right; we aren't planning a, an all at once big bang. Although the, okay. you know, obviously the final published results will, but that's a different matter. But at least to give, so we're, we're not looking to surprise anyone here. Okay, and I and I'm just I'm just grouping it into sort of three buckets of concern. Right, the first bucket is transition impact on balance sheet. The second impact is anything, if, if anything, on LICAT. And the third is earnings power. Which of those three buckets do you think you're, you got, you're, you're better prepared to talk about um, earlier? And what do you think you have to wait until far later in the process? Uh, you know, I would say, um, Darko, that the, the reality is they're all interwoven. Um, you know, there's, yep. there's, they're interwoven for sure. And, and we're still continuing as an industry to work with um, OSFI on, on how this will play out with uh, LICAT relative to volatility. So um, it's hard to sort of uh, describe one of those as being locked down before the others because of that. But Gary, you may have, you know, you might want to provide a different perspective. No, no, I think you're right, Bob. There, there's certainly, uh, there's definitely a connection between them. I mean, uh, you know, the example uh, I think most people use is the contractual service margin coming out of retained earnings on on transition. There'd be some aspect of that, and that will also feed into the uh, the income as it gets you know, re-amortized back into earnings. So they're they're definitely connected. 
And, and you're right, it's uh, you know, ourselves and the industry not only working with OSPI, which I, I mentioned earlier, but also working with the rating agencies just to make sure it's, uh, it's well handled. If we, if we stand back from it, the, the economics of the business aren't changing. It's, a, it's an accounting transition. And so we need to make sure that it, uh, it lands appropriately and, and, we get, uh, and we think that by the right education, uh, we, can, uh, we can assist all the various stakeholders in that. Okay, great. Thank you. Appreciate that. Great. This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Mann for any closing remarks. Uh, thank you, Ariel. Uh, well, uh, again, as always, we appreciate your time and your questions and your interest, and we actually really look forward to connecting with you all um, in early May for our Q1 reporting and our annual meeting. And uh, um, from there, uh, we wish you a healthy and a great first quarter. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.